Content warning. The following program may contain descriptions of violence and or sexual assault that may be upsetting to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. The upper left corner of the United States is full of stunning scenery. Beautiful mountains, raging rivers, breathtaking valleys, and so much more. But the Pacific Northwest is also known for something more sinister. This beautiful land also seems to be a breeding ground for serial killers and others who perform heinous acts. I was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, and I've had a fascination with true crime since childhood. I'm here to tell you the true crime stories of the PNW. Grab your sweater and a cup of coffee. I'm your host, Emily, and this is The Upper Left Corner. Depot parking lot is where that bowling alley once stood. In 1999, the two-year-old disappeared from right here. Today, police released new information and they hope you can help. His motivation to solve this case is simple. Tika's mother. It really makes it easy to try to keep the case alive for her and to try to find her some answers. Um, she has never given up on her daughter, finding her daughter, and um, I really admire that. He's not going to stop looking until we find them. Teresa Lewis says she finally feels she has a detective who will get answers, but she knows the answers he uncovers may be darker than she's ever before allowed herself to consider. Nobody will know the pain that I felt when he told me this. Nobody. Teresa has long held on to hope that whoever took Tika took her to raise her and love her. Maybe somebody who wanted a baby. But she says the information Detective Riappel has shared with her about the witness account of the pockmarked man has forced her to confront a horrific reality. That man went in there to find somebody find a child and harm that child and that man took my child my everything that was my world right there more than two decades later Teresa's world is still shattered memories are frozen in time Tika's coat that she wore to the bowling alley that night the Pooh bear she was so attached to it's all Teresa has left I've lived 21 years in a nightmare, and I think it needs to come to an end. I want to bring her home, regardless if she's here or not. It's time to bring her home. This episode, I will be covering the case of Tika Lewis. Today's case is every parent's worst nightmare. It appears to be a stranger abduction of a child. But before we get started, the PNW city I'll be profiling this week is Tacoma, Washington. 
Tacoma is located in Pierce County on the Puget Sound and is about 32 miles southwest of Seattle and 31 miles from the state capital of Olympia. As of the 2010 census, the population was 191,704, and this is the third largest city in the state of Washington. Tacoma was actually named after Mount Rainier, which was first named Tacoma or Tahoma in Salishan. The Port of Tacoma is the largest port in Washington and a center for international trade for the West Coast. It is locally known as the City of Destiny after it was selected to be a major hub for the railways in the early 19th century. And between the railways and seaport, their motto became from rail to sea. On July 1st, 1940, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge opened to traffic. It was the third largest suspension bridge in the world behind the Golden Gate and George Washington Bridge. It dramatically collapsed on November 7th of the same year that it had opened. During the construction, it was noted that the bridge would move vertically in windy conditions, so much so that the workers had nicknamed it Galloping Gertie. However, that was not enough of a red flag to take another look at the construction. The collapse was caused by 40 mile per hour winds. Thankfully, no people died in the collapse, but unfortunately, a cocker spaniel named Tubby did. R.I.P. Tubby. Now on to some notable people who have called Tacoma home. NBA star Isaiah Thomas, singer and actor Bing Crosby, and current Pittsburgh Steeler Zach Banner. And now on to the case. Tika Lewis was born on the 4th of July as the fourth child to Teresa English. According to the Seattle Times, her mother describes Tika as shy and clingy. Quote, she wouldn't go outside on her own. She's a mama's girl. She sleeps with me in her blankie, and if I'm not there, she's crying, and if she doesn't have her blankie, she's crying, end quote. On January 23, 1999, two-year-old Tika and nearly a dozen family members spent the evening bowling at the New Frontier Lanes in Tacoma, Washington. It was a league night, so it was a very busy place. Her extended family was taking turns watching Tika, who was last seen playing a race car video game in the arcade section, about six feet away from the exit at about 10.30 p.m. Her mother said she had turned away just for a moment to watch her brother bull, and when she turned around, the little girl had vanished. Tika's mom panicked immediately and began searching for her daughter. She looked in between all of the game machines, checked the bathroom, started having the employees make announcements about the missing child, and found an off-duty police officer who helped her search. Law enforcement was contacted and got involved immediately. Now, I'm a mom, and this is my worst nightmare. My oldest is 10, so I've been at this parenting thing for a while, and off the top of my head, I can think of a handful of times where we were out somewhere and had multiple family members and our three kids, and you just kind of relax a little knowing that there are people helping and extra eyes on your kids, and then all of a sudden, you can't see one of your kids. Thank God nothing like this has ever happened to me, but the moment when your kid has gone into the photo booth at the arcade or went around the corner to refill their drink, it honestly can make you physically sick to your stomach. I just feel so bad for this family. At the time of the disappearance, Teresa had given birth to her fifth child, who was also there that night, a 10-month-old baby girl. Nearly 200 police officers and volunteers searched the bowling alley in nearby neighborhoods that night and all of Sunday with a helicopter infrared equipment, bloodhounds, and German shepherds. They knocked on doors and visited local businesses, hoping to find surveillance footage near the bowling alley 
and asked anyone who was at the bowling alley for any video footage they had. It was a league night, so although camera phones were not yet a thing in 1999, some people may have had camcorders for the competitive event. All of these tactics turned up no trace of Tika. By midday Sunday, the police were leaning towards the stranger abduction theory. Within days, they had over 35 officers assigned just to this case from the Tacoma Police Department, Pierce County Sheriff's Office, and the FBI. All of the family members at the bowling alley were extremely cooperative and were interviewed by police, as well as relatives of her biological father. Tika's mom underwent a polygraph test within days of her daughter's disappearance in hopes to be ruled out, and so all the focus could be elsewhere. Tika's uncles even organized gatherings at a radio station in the Tacoma Dome for volunteers to come get flyers to pass out and speak with the community. At the time of Tika's disappearance, her biological father was incarcerated, and there had never been any custody issues between her parents, so he was also ruled out of having any involvement. One week after Tika went missing, her story was featured on America's Most Wanted and would be featured multiple times over the years. The Tacoma Police Department and the FBI ran parallel investigations, one focusing on the family while the other investigated as if it were a stranger abduction. They ended up interviewing over 300 people who were at the bowling alley that night. Most of them were interviewed twice, and from that, only two small leads came. One woman saw a maroon Pontiac Grand Am speed out of the parking lot that night. The car may have had four doors and possibly was a late 80s or early 90s model with dark tinted windows and a large spoiler. Another witness recalled seeing an unidentified Caucasian man that may have been following a child to the alley's exit during the night. The man is described as being in his 30s with shoulder length brown hair, facial pockmarks, a mustache, and a large nose. Two months after Tika disappeared, a four-year-old boy was molested in the bathroom at the New Frontier Lanes. The suspect had brown curly hair and a beard. Two security guards working believed that they had seen the man at the bowling alley before, but they did not know his name. A few weeks after that incident, a Caucasian man with brown hair tried to lure a six-year-old boy from the same bowling alley, claiming to be the child's father. And then earlier on in the day that Tika went missing, a man with curly brown hair attempted to kidnap two children from a park less than half a mile away from the bowling alley. The children's father was able to chase him away, and he fled in a blue 1995 Pontiac Grand Am. This part is too suspicious for me. This is the second time that a Pontiac Grand Am was mentioned. What are the odds? Also, the first witness at the bowling alley say they saw a maroon Grand Am, but when Tika went missing, it was 10.30 at night in January. It was definitely dark outside, and I believe it's possible the color could have been mistaken. The fact that a person tried to abduct two children in broad daylight escapes in a Grand Am on the very same day Tika was taken and there was a Grand Am scene in the area is very suspicious to me. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. And now back to the story. One year after Tika's disappearance, her mom gave her theory of what happened to her daughter that night to reporter Rebecca Cook. She is quoted as saying, Tika was stolen by a mixed-race couple who couldn't have kids of their own. The kidnappers have locked her up in a white house way out in the country, spoiling her rotten. I really do hope that is true. However, the police have stated that they don't believe she is alive. However, they are still investigating her case as endangered missing. Over the years... Tika's DNA has been run when an unidentified body is found 
where Tika could match the description. In 2001, remains of a child believed to be between the ages of 4 and 6 matching Tika's description were found in Kansas City. After a DNA test, it was ruled that the remains did not belong to Tika. And after several years, those remains were identified as Erica Green in 2005. Her mother and stepfather were charged in her brutal murder. In 2006, a private investigator found a girl in Texas that looked like she could be Tika. The girl was living with a woman and agreed to take a DNA test. When Teresa saw the picture of her, she thought it was her daughter. She said she looked exactly like her other daughters. However, the DNA test came back that the girl was not Tika. In 2017, on the 18th anniversary of her disappearance, Tika's father, Robert Lewis, spoke publicly about her for the first time. He said he always holds hope that she'll be found alive and will come home. Also, quote, I faulted myself and I still do, you know, for not being there. I took the chicken way out. I went to prison instead of being a dad. I was there and I should have just stayed there. God was telling me if I get my life correct, if I get myself together, he will bless me and bring my baby back home to us. He says he still has hopes that she will come home. In July of 2018, Teresa said that she has hope that genealogical advances might be able to bring her answers. The detective on the case had told her to submit her DNA on all of the family tracing sites. That way, if Tika was alive and grown up and she ever got curious about her heritage, she might submit her DNA to Ancestry.com or a similar site and get a match to her real mom. Although it hasn't happened yet, it has brought her hope. In January 2020, a new witness came forward and warmed this case up a bit. The witness who was protecting his identity and going by the name John spoke with Q13 News. He was 17 years old on the night when Tika went missing, and he shared his story publicly for the first time about a man he saw with Tika. John describes the bowling alley as being crowded with a sea of people, and when he went to use the restroom, a rude man bumped into him with this little girl. The man was white and the girl was mixed race, so he just assumed that it was a father taking his daughter to the restroom. John says the man bumped into his shoulder hard but didn't apologize and seemed to be in a rush. The rest of the evening went along normally, but when John and his family left the bowling alley, they noticed police in the parking lot. He said the police didn't discuss what or who they were looking for. A few days later, John saw the picture of Tika on the news. That was when he realized the man he had seen with the child that he'd later know as Tika was not her father. He knew he had to say something, so he was interviewed by police in January of 1999. He never heard anything more from the police and often wondered if this information was just irrelevant. Flash forward two decades and a cold case investigator going over thousands of pages in the case file came across John's interview notes and knew it was likely significant. The description that John gave was of a man with pockmarks on his face. While this detective was looking through the files, he found a similar tip. About a week after Tika disappeared, a news crew was staging a reenactment outside of the bowling alley. And someone who was watching noticed a pockmarked face man that was acting strangely. In January 2020, Tika's mother told King 5 News that the police had shown her a picture of the man in November and she instantly recognized him. Quote, I remembered the guy from the bowling alley, and if that's the case, there's no way Tika is here right now, end quote. 
She said the man seemed like someone she would not want around her children. She also said the man followed a Facebook page that she runs dedicated to finding Tika, which is super strange because I cannot find any more info on this. If they have a picture of this guy and she knows his Facebook information, it seems like we would know more by now since this was from November of 2019. The detective says they are looking to identify a white man around 5 feet 11 inches tall with a husky build and shoulder-length curly brown hair with a thick mustache and heavily pockmarked face. They state the night of the disappearance he was wearing a blue plaid shirt and faded jeans. On January 23rd, 2021, it will be the 22nd anniversary of Tika's disappearance. For many of those years, her mother held out hope that whoever took her would raise her and love her. She says the information she's been given from the newest detective on the case about the pockmarked man has forced her to confront a horrific reality. She stated, quote, That man went in to find somebody, to find a child and harm that child. And that man took my child, my everything. That was my world right there. End quote. Teresa still has the coat that Tika wore to the bowling alley that night and the Pooh Bear that she was so attached to. She says, I've lived 21 years in a nightmare, and I think it has to come to an end. I want to bring her home, regardless of if she's here or not. It's time to bring her home. Along with the pockmarked face man, investigators are still trying to find more information about that 90s Pontiac Grand Am that was maroon or purple with a spoiler on the back that was seen speeding out of the parking lot around the time that Tika disappeared. To me, this case is so heartbreaking. Tika would be 24 today. I don't know what I would have done differently in her mother's shoes, and you can tell that she truly loves and misses her daughter. I really hope she gets the answers that she deserves. Someone has to know something. Maybe you had a coworker or family member who matches the man's description. I mean, I feel like it's a good description of someone you would definitely remember, especially if they drove a similar car. The one good thing to come from Tika's kidnapping was the creation of the Tika Lewis Bill in Washington State. Her family supported the passing of the 1999 bill that created an Exploited and Missing Children Task Force and made it possible for the Washington State Patrol to join in the search for missing children immediately. This was a huge deal for any future missing children as there were so many more resources available to help. At the time of Tika's disappearance, the state of Washington did not have the Amber Alert system. According to the Washington State Patrol website, the Amber Alert plan became a nationwide initiative after the 1996 kidnapping of Amber Hagerman in Arlington, Texas. At the time she was kidnapped, the police were given a description of the kidnapper and a vehicle description. However, there was no system to quickly get this information to the public and other law enforcement agencies. The letters in Amber's name are used as an acronym, America's Missing Broadcast Emergency Response, in order to never forget Amber. The Washington State Amber Alert Plan was authorized by RCW in 2003, with the Washington State Patrol designated as the lead agency. The chief of the WSP is the state Amber Alert Manager and has the final decision-making ability over all aspects of the statewide plan. There is an advisory committee composed of stakeholders that includes people from the DOT, Washington Association of Broadcasters, Washington State Association of Sheriffs and Police Chiefs, and the Washington State Department of Emergency Management. 
I can only imagine what a difference this may have made if the Tika Lewis bill and the Amber Alert system were in place in 1999 when she was kidnapped. Two-year-old Tika Lewis disappeared on January 23, 1999 from Tacoma, Washington. She was three feet tall and 35 pounds. She was African-American, Native American, and white. She had dimples and her ears pierced. She was wearing a green Tweety Bird sweatshirt or t-shirt, white sweatpants, and black and white Air Jordan sneakers with her hair pulled into ponytails. She was carrying a clear purse with a fish design containing Starburst candies. She was asthmatic and needed her inhalers and nebulizers. If you have any information on this case, contact Crime Stoppers for a $1,000 cash reward using the P3 Tips app on your smartphone or call the hotline at 1-800-222-TIPS. Or you can contact the Tacoma Police Department at 253-798-4721 or the FBI at 202-324-3000. And that is the disappearance of Tika Lewis. This week's wine that I paired with my PNW True Crime to take the edge off of researching a child being kidnapped is my personal favorite red, 14 Hands Hot to Trot Red Blend. According to their website, 14 Hand Wines are inspired by the unbridled spirit of the wild horses that once roamed freely in eastern Washington. My family and I took a little road trip a few weeks back and my kids loved looking for the wild horses around Sadis Pass. They are a Washington wine with a tasting room in Prosser that I've been meaning to get to. For the Hot to Trot Red Blend I've been sipping, the tasting notes are as follows. Flavors of cherry pie, ripe berries, and plums, supported by a frame of refined tannins, give way to subtle notes of baking spice on a persistent finish. It's super tasty and pairs well with lasagna. And now I want lasagna. Cheers, and thank you for listening. This has been Upper Left Corner, a PNW true crime podcast. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with a friend. I did not uncover any of the evidence I shared in the telling of the story today. All of the sources I used to write this episode are listed in the show notes. If you have a case suggestion or a PNW wine recommendation, please email me at upperleftpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.